everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Clear the Dance Floor here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Colby Smith. I'll be with you until the 5 o'clock hour, at which point Sophia and her friends at Shedding Light will keep the party going. But until then, I have a guest today. He is an author and critic whose writing about film has appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly, Decider, RogerEbert.com, The Current by the Criterion Collection, and Premiere Magazine, where he was the chief film critic. He's also the author of Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas, and his newest book is The World is Yours, The Story of Scarface, which hits bookstores this May. Please welcome to the program, Glenn Kenny. Hey, how are you? Thanks Such for having me. Such a pleasure to have you here. So oh, much to, to be here. So much to talk to you about. Uh, I want to jump right in and talk about the new book because sure. I've made the mistake in the past of having authors on and waiting till the end to talk about the book. I'm running out of time. So let's jump in. Uh, the World is Yours, The Story of Scarface, comes out in May. What yeah. are the origins of the project? The origins go back to when I was at Premiere Magazine. I was actually working on a project like this with a different... Uh, representative and uh you know it's 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 a publishing book publishing hard cover paperback uh dead tree book publishing has uh, been in <laughs> kind of crisis for a very long time and different kinds of books have different kinds of uh half lives in terms of saleability and uh, long story short we just current could not uh sell a scarface book uh, and then a couple of years after that, um, Ken Tucker, who's a, who's a colleague and someone I'm friendly with, uh, managed to do a, a Scarface book. More about the cultural uh, impact of Scarface than mm-hmm. the actual film itself as such. I mean, it's about both. But, and I thought that was the end of that. So um, what happened was eventually, and this is you know literally like 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> so... In 2018, I sold uh, a proposal for a book about Goodfellas, and I spent two years writing that. And, uh, I entered into a relationship with uh, publisher Hanover Square Press and an editor there, Peter Joseph, who was uh, very supportive. And you know, they, they did a great job with the book and, and throughout all stages. And the book did reasonably well enough. And so when the book does well, you can do another book maybe. And it's... Uh, <laughs> salutary sometimes to make the next book relatively similar to the last book. I had an idea to break away a little bit and do a book about a romantic comedy. I won't say which one because that'll lead us into all sorts of woods that I don't want to get into. Right. Uh, but I did have a get a contract for that book and I did spend six months researching it until it became clear that uh, there were certain parties in the, in the area of the filmmaker who's no longer with us who did not want this book to happen and we're going to tell people not to talk to me and i thought that's not good um so i kind of you know and i was in the middle of you know i was six months into researching and had a contract and had a deadline and i kind of had to retrench and uh, come up with something else and that's when i thought well you know the whole idea of being a person who writes about genre films Mm -hmm. in books is not the worst idea in the world um, it's, it's okay to have a niche or a category or something that's familiar from a marketing standpoint. And I thought about a few things and I thought about Scarface and, uh, I put together a little proposal to do a Scarface book and instead of what I had been working on, my publisher said yes to that. It was a long process and it was often, um, arduous. There were certain people I didn't get to talk to who I would have liked to have talked to that I had to employ certain strategies to sort of get around that. 
But overall, I think uh, it went it, it went very well. Mm-hmm. And Brian De Palma was very cooperative. The screenwriter Oliver Stone was very cooperative. I had a wonderful interview with Michelle Pfeiffer. A lot of talks with a lot of people in editing and sound and music. And um, I'm very happy with the book, and other people are very happy with the book too. Um, so I just got a what's today's date is it the 11th the 11th so i can say um we just got a starred review in kirkus reviews oh very cool which is great it's a great yeah. way to start off the promotion yeah, for a book gonna, with a starred say. review in kirkus so that hopefully is auguring well for the book's future and also the book if you go to pre-order it on amazon or barnes and noble you'll see the cover and the book has a tiger on the cover mm-hmm. Uh, Tiger doesn't figure largely in Scarface, but it is a symbological thing in the film where yeah. he says when he makes it big, he's going to buy a tiger. And <laughs> then when he does do it, he buys the tiger. And there's like one shot of the tiger. Like, there it is, the tiger. Yeah. And then when the, um, when the, when the, uh, when his boss's uh, men come to kill him in Miami uh, as they invade the compound, you, you actually hear the tiger. But you don't find out what happened. Yeah, yeah. I think they probably killed it. <laughs> honestly, because what? What if it got loose? That'd be yeah. a whole sequel sort of thing. So, but the tiger is symbolic of what Tony Montana sees as as, as, as the fruits of his success. And so we've got a tiger, and we've got some blood spurts, and and I'm like, ah, tiger. Yeah. Remember uh, Apocalypse Now, where they go into the jungle and they get some mangoes, and it's like, yeah. yeah. They, I don't know if you could do the language on the show. But no, you like, can. Yeah. A yeah. Fucking tiger. I'm like. <laughs> So I'm like, I see the cover. I'm like, fucking tiger. I'm like, this is awesome. So yeah, I, I feel like I, I, I was like, I could die happy. Totally having a tiger on the the cover of my latest book. I'm like, I've done everything I yeah. wanted to. <laughs> I've achieved everything in life that I've aspired to. And also, people love tigers. They love cats. People buy books with tigers on the cover. This is my own personal yeah, yeah. crackpot theory, which I may have <laughs> no basis in reality, but. It, it it feels right to me. So I'm hoping, I mean, what's inside the book is good too. Right. right. Yeah. But the tiger really is just, just the, for me, it's the chef's kiss after sprinkling yes. the salt on the meal. It's like fucking tiger. So yeah. I'm really excited about that. I want to go to bookstores. Also, when I did Made Men, the book we're going to talk a bit about, mm-hmm. uh, that book came out during the pandemic. Yeah. I could not, I was not able to do any in-person promotion whatsoever. Right. right. Uh, and my, you know, my media and, promotion options were severely limited so and the book did okay anyway the Mm. book did well anyway so i'm hoping that this book does even better because i'm going to be like in everybody's face starting on may 7th and a little before i'm going to be you're going to be an inescapable media personality (laughs) to promote this book i'm going to be jennifer lopez levels of exposure hopefully and uh, so i'm hoping the, the book does well and people like it you know i've uh I've um, some people in in the biz who've read it are very happy with it, and I I got a very nice note from Brian De Palma himself mm. about the book, and he's not someone who's uh, particularly easy to please. Right. Um, I have a former I teach at NYU, and I have you know I have a former student, I have several former students who I'm friendly with, and one of them is a feisty radical filmmaker. He says it. It doesn't matter if De Palma likes your book or not. I'm like, yeah, in the abstract, it doesn't matter if De Palma likes my book or not. But in the practical world of things that I would prefer to have happen, yeah, I think it's a pretty good thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess the alternative is bad. I'm like, yeah, the alternative is bad. <laughs> <laughs> but the, what I what is actually happening is good. So that's great. So I'm really excited about this yeah. book. I mean, I, I had 
Writing is writing is such a weird thing. I mean, I shouldn't say that because I don't want to mystify it, but it's one of those things. Like whenever I'm reading a book and it's of a certain size, and I'm like, mm-hmm. ah, I'm reading right now. I'm reading Naomi Klein's book Doppelganger. Oh yes, about how people confuse her with Naomi Wolf, but it's also about <laughs> a myriad of other things, and it's a lengthy book. Um, I'm reading it. I'm like, look, you know, you look at the first paragraph, and then you look at the rest of the book, and it's like, man, someone someone did all this. You yeah, know? yeah. And it's like. I'm actually starting my follow-up to uh, the Scarface book right now, but everything, you know, everything starts with like the first sentence or the first paragraph, and then it's like, yeah, I, I can't make the sound effect properly. Like, you know, and, and it's sort of like I've got that journey ahead of me now, right? Right, with this next book I'm doing. But looking at uh, the world is yours, the story of Scarface, and looking at the uh, introduction, the preface, where I talk about prohibition. Mm-hmm. Because the whole engine for the gangster movie in the 1930s, the gangster movie that provided the template for uh, Scarface, because there was a Scarface in 1932, but also the gangster movie that provided a template for Goodfellas, Mm -hmm. that all started, that was prohibition. You know, the the gangsters in 1930s gangster movies needed a reason for being, and prohibition was that reason, bootlegging. And once that went away, that, you know, the gangster movie sort of lost a lot of its vital energy to the extent that, you know, when they made a gangster movie, when Warner Brothers, Mark Hellinger, producer, and Warner Brothers Studio made a gangster movie later in the 30s, they had to go back. They had to make one and call it the Roaring Twenties because they needed bootlegging, you know. And the thing about the um, Brian De Palma Scarface set in 1983, the original idea, someone thought, well, let's do it again as a period piece. Mm -hmm. Let's do... You know, what essentially became The Untouchables, also right, directed right. by Brian Paul. Let's do it as a period piece. This is before Brian was involved. And everybody was down with that. And then somebody along the line said, eh, no, 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 let's bring it up to date. Let's do this. And so what's the correlative? And it's cocaine. Yeah. It's the drug wars. It's the whole thing. Which is, you know, it, and the drug wars are in their own way just as disastrous mm. as Prohibition was. Yeah. So I begin my Scarface book with an examination of Prohibition and then an examination of early ideas about cocaine and subsequent cocaine culture. But if I look at the book now and I see that, you know, I have a very short, you know, every amendment to the United States Constitution has its own story. The story of the 18th Amendment is a killer. That's the first two lines of the book, if I recall correctly. And I'm like, Mm. and then everything else happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm like, (laughs) wow, yeah, I did that. So it's kind of neat, you know, and it's just kind of similar feeling when I finished the – when I finished the book on Goodfellas, that process was a lot more interesting and upside down in certain ways. And we can talk about that when we get to that book. But <laughs> sure. I, I am excited and I encourage you, look for the book with the tiger on the cover. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The World is Yours. The yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about De Palma a little bit too, you know, because I, I is it fair to say he's, kind of, I feel like he's kind of under-celebrated now. I agree. You know? I agree. And I, I, I think I try and do my part in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, not to not to be cynical or, or anything like that, but I think one reason that De Palma does like the book is because I take his side. Yeah, and I don't take his side because I'm trying to be a suck up. I right. take his side because I actually believe in his side. Mm-hmm. You know, Oliver Stone has his differences with him to this day. He respects Scarface as a film, mm. and why wouldn't you? Because of how celebrated it is, and how legendary it's become, and how iconic it is, for better or worse. But he's, you know, he's. Oliver Stone wrote a very good memoir, which I used in, in my book called Chasing the Light, but I supplemented that with a, an interview. And Stone talks about how De Palma is, you know, 
kind of not physical as a director. He's always sitting. He's not this. He's not that. He says, well, yeah, because he's trying to figure out how to get what he wants on film. He's not a director who just shows up at the set and looks at the space and says, you know, now we're doing this. He thinks about he He has a vision before he even, you know, he does storyboards. He has ideas. He works with a production designer. And then, you know, Everything that you have in your brain, this was a truth about Hitchcock too, everything that's in your mind about what your ideal is to shoot just starts getting kind of cut away the minute you bring actual real space into it. Right. And so the for that kind of filmmaker, the, the bridging, bridging the gap between the ideal of the shot and the real space in which it has to be um, recorded in is a constant struggle and it requires constant thought. Mm-hmm. So no, he's not he's not a, a he's not like a stage director who's going to act out things or orchestrate things with the actors. You know, he expects the actors to be there and to be prepared. And on Scarface he gave a lot of latitude to Pacino who just wanted take after take after take after take. And one thing that Michelle Pfeiffer said to me that was interesting is like, well, you know, honestly every actor would love to do that. Yeah. If they had the clout. And at the time, Pacino had the clout and he did it. Yeah. So as much of a pain as it might have been for some people on the set, good for him. Right. <laughs> but um, you know, so you know, but but Pacino was kind of a it was a kind of a double barreled power hierarchy because De Palma was working for Pacino and he was working for Marty Bregman. Mm-hmm. Marty Bregman, the producer who had been Pacino's longtime manager. He wasn't his manager at this point, but they had this very unusual kind of father-son relationship uh similar to the relationship that Bregman had with Oliver Stone which mm. which still chafes at Oliver Stone to this day it was an interesting thing to discover that uh despite the fact that Martin Bregman's been dead for quite some time uh Oliver Stone still kind of gets his back up in terms of the way Martin Bregman treated him mm. mixed in with great admiration for the things that Martin Bregman was able to do right so, yeah, I think De Palma is under-celebrated. And I think, you know, I think it's great that younger filmmaker, film film enthusiasts are uh, excited by works of his like Blowout, mm-hmm. works of his by like uh, like Dress to Kill and Body yeah. Devil. I think those movies are great. I think Raising Cain is great. You know, I think when he makes a film that doesn't work, like Redacted, I don't think that worked. But... Uh, and I said so at the time when I was at premiere, and it pained me to do so because I was a I was I was a De Palma fan. I didn't like seeing, but I you know I was I, De Palma and Scorsese. You know, as far as as American filmmakers are going, they, they were two big formative um, filmmakers for me mm-hmm. growing up. You yeah, know, in my teens and 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 early twenties. And for some reason, I guess I was even more intimidated by De, De Palma than I was by Scorsese. Yeah. Yeah, who I had, you know, who I got to know a little bit in the late '80s, right? You know, when I was still in my 20s, right, right. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm happy to wave the flag for Brian De Palma. He's a great director. Yeah, it's Here. interesting too. There, there's this uh, uh, a clip of the two of them on the Dick Cavett show mm-hmm. from yeah, from right. around that time, and it is interesting to watch it now that Scorsese is kind of like the one who is a household name, you know, much more so than De Palma is, and he is uh, he he looms so much physically larger than Scorsese yeah. too, and that I mean he he's a very kind of I understand being intimidated by him is what I'm trying to yeah. say. They suffered together uh, yeah. in the early '70s at Warner Brothers. Uh, and I go into that a little bit. Their friend Jay Cox, uh, who was a screenwriter for Scorsese and who worked with De Palma on uh, 
sisters and who did some work on the Mission Impossible script. And he's great friends with both Brian De Palma and Martin Scorsese. And uh, he talks about the early days in the 70s with, you know, Marty and uh, Brian sitting on the curb outside Warner Brothers with their heads in their hands. And Michael Wadley, the director of Woodstock, driving by in a convertible with Thelma Schoonmacher. Right. The editor and uh, second, uh, you know, assistant director on uh, Woodstock, and Thelma's looking like the queen of the May, while Brian and 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 Marty are, are sitting there, you know, ready to to, to jump off a bridge. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, so but yeah, I mean, and I mean, I, I know that Brian De Palma and Marty Scorsese are, are good friends these this day. Um, another person I interviewed for the book is David Kep, the screenwriter for Carlito's mm. Way, which I write about because. Obviously, Carlito's Way, which reunites Bregman and Pacino and De Palma, is a way, almost spiritual sequel to uh, Scarface in a way that, you know, uh, Untouchables is is a kind of an alternate world version of Scarface. But, um, you know, David Kep is a guy who's written a lot with Brian De Palma mm. and is still, uh, they're still very friendly and very close, as, as, as Jay Cox and, right. and Brian are. And those guys were two very interesting people to talk with about Brian and the pro- his process of making films. Yeah, I bet. I bet, man. It, it was, I, I actually, I watched Scarface last night for the first oh. time since like high school, you know, cause to, to, to prep for this. And it was amazing. Like it's, I feel like it gets better as it goes on, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like that all those, those interiors and the mansion and everything. I mean, it's like, it's such an eighties, you know, it's such a, like a definitive statement of like that, that point in time. Yeah. He was, you know, Brian was asked to make a specific kind of film by Bregman and Pacino. And not only did he make that film, but he brought a lot of added value to it. Yeah. You know, Stone was really irritated that um, De Palma made the uh, siege of the mansion so elaborate. Mm. It had so many people coming from it. He says, well, I'm a Vietnam vet, and I know what real violence looks like, and that doesn't look like real violence. And he didn't, you know, the point wasn't real violence. The point was opera violence. It was an opera. You know, the red in that mansion, there's enough red in there to, like, uh, to, to to dress 17 uh, different versions of Zeffirelli's production of Don Giovanni. Yes. Um, so, you know, but that's the whole point. So, you know, and that's beautiful. And that that scene is legendary, mm. you know, and people talk about it. And, and Pacino, who, you know, um, some people say Pacino doesn't like to talk about Scarface that much because he considers it a little louche. The day class say, but you know, when he's doing a public speaking engagement and I saw him do this at the 92nd street Y in April and he's fiending for the applause, he'll sit there and he'll say, and then I made Scarface and everybody's like, <laughs> and it was directed by Brian De Palma. And, like, <laughs> and he's talking about, there's an incident that happened during the sh- shooting of the finale where he, you know, even though the, the guns are all loaded with blanks and there's a very expert armorer there. Uh, that despite the muzzle flashes and stuff, nothing's really coming out of the gun. But the gun mm-hmm. gets really hot. Yeah. And Pacino gets carried away with the moment, and he goes to grab the gun by the muzzle, and <laughs> it sears itself to his hand. Oh and he God. has to go to the hospital. And he's in the hospital for quite some time, and they, you know, he's not there, but De Palma keeps shooting the scene anyway because he's yeah. got all sorts of different action to shoot. And this is you know, this is a meme that's become a myth that's become a meme uh-huh. where so Pacino's sitting there then and he kept shooting that scene and he brought in Steven Spielberg <laughs> and Steven Spielberg directed a scene. I'm like, no, he didn't. Right, and right. I, I did a follow up with Brian a little later that I was, you know, 
Now, Al Pacino has been going around saying Stephen. I didn't spread it like that, but I'm <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. yeah, there's this persistent internet rumor that this happened. And he's like, no, I don't recollect that as being. He didn't even get mad. He's like, no, that's not what happened. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. think it was. What happened was Stephen visited the set one day, and I had a setup on camera four, and I said to him, go look at camera four. <laughs> that's what, it, and he looked at camera four. And that's the shot it. went off, and that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's him directing a scene. A Brian De Palma's not going to subcontract any of his shots to anyone, even if they're Steven Spielberg. Right. right. I mean, he doesn't consider himself cowed by Spielberg. Frankly, in terms of being camera directors, mm-hmm. uh, I think Spielberg, um, Scorsese, uh, and De Palma are uh, kind of equals, mm-hmm. uh, each with a different... Uh, strength yeah um but they're you know they don't they don't let other people do their shots for yeah them. yeah 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 well this might be a good good time to kind of switch over to scorsese yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit just uh because uh, um, I, mean, I mean he clearly is like you know a filmmaker who resonates you know with you particularly and uh, uh do, do you have a theory as to why why that is other than just the strength of probably because i'm a mook I'm right a, i'm a half i'm, I'm an i'm half you know my name is kenny but i'm half italian american uh, I, my mom was a Petrosino whose people were from Napoli and I ate, you know, my, my grandmother on my mother's side was the one who cooked very elaborate meals every Sunday. Mm. So I got brought up on chicken cacciatore and lasagna and rigatoni and all that stuff. And people yelling at the table, who was talking about, um, someone was talking about, I, I, I watched Raging Bull and I think it's funny because nobody thinks Raging Bull is funny. It's not funny. Yeah. But what's funny about it is if you sit and you listen to them talk yeah. and you're from an Italian-American background, that's pretty funny. Right. Uh, you know, when they're sitting at the pool and Jake LaMotta is asking his younger brother, Joey, if he tried to date, he uses a cruder term, Vicky. And uh, he says, yeah, a guy tried. He says, yeah, because, you know, he knew, she knew. It's no good with you because you're you're an animal, and that's <laughs> not funny. But it's funny because if you yeah. grew, that's what people, that's what Italian Americans back in the sixties talk like to each other like Louis, I'm gonna kill your dog and I'm gonna eat it. Yeah, <laughs> it's not funny, and yet it's funny. Uh, yeah. So you know when I remember a very good friend of mine, um, who's my age saw mean streets about a you know sometime before me and he called me up and tell me about it he described very breathlessly the opening scene with the eight millimeter uh home movies and the Mm -hmm. be my baby on the soundtrack and he's like this is this is this is us this is a movie for us yeah so that was that was that right and i went and i saw it and i'm like yeah 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 i mean i'm not i I wasn't like those i was you know i was i was i didn't i wasn't a criminal i didn't i wasn't i mean i may became a criminal but um, I wasn't a criminal. I didn't do bad things. I was 13, but I saw those people and I saw something of yeah, myself in some of them. This is, which is weird because mean streets, particularly it starts off with like, Hey, you know, it's a lot of guys going to each other. Hey, Hey, Hey. And it's funny. And again, but by the end of the movie, these guys are, are just rancid. They're the yeah. worst people on the face of the planet. And you mm-hmm. want them something bad to happen to them. And you're punished for that, too, because when the bad thing does happen, it's worse than what you wanted to happen to them. Yes. So Scorsese's a pretty clever filmmaker in that way. Mm. Um, so that was that. Certainly Taxi Driver terrified me. Oh, yeah. Um, there's funny stuff in that, too. But, you know, um, what are you going to bust my chops? Uh, I, you want to bust my ch- I got guys in here every day. You know, yeah. Joe Spinell and all that stuff. But also the the, the just terrifying but 
strangely alluring night scenes of New York City. Oh, very, yeah. very accurate to the time. I actually remember, I never went inside the Belmore Cafeteria, but I did see it once or twice before they shut it down mm. on Park Avenue, of all places. Um, so, and that kind of urban dystopia. Yeah, I remember when I moved to New York, and I used to go to the arcades. I used to play pinball at Fascination, not a lack of anything better to do. Um, I mean, I never identify with Travis Bickle in any way, shape, <laughs> or form, except, you know, uh, for that kind of, like, aimlessness sure, that he sure. experienced. You know, and I remember I, I many years ago, I edited a book about Star Wars called uh, Galaxy Not So Far Away, which mm-hmm. didn't sell well at all. It was thing, I think it was the first and only Star Wars related book to to lose money. I was just going to say. But um, <laughs> what's the name of that? Um, Cass Sunstein, right? The jurist, mm-hmm. the guy who... Uh, uh, he's he's like a he's like a he's like a legal theorist who teaches at Har- Harvard, and he wrote some book called you know what Star Wars can teach us about law or something like oh, that. Gosh. And he yeah. he he goes to my book like that's cited about a dozen times in his <laughs> book. So I'm like, well, the book wasn't read by too many of the of the too many people, but it was read by the best people. But I, I wrote in the introduction of that book, you know, the, the the week that Star Wars opened, I went to see New York, New York at yeah. the Ziegfeld. That yeah. was my thing. So I was a dedicated follower of Scorsese. And like anybody else, I was just sort of knocked out by everything he did. You know, mm-hmm. I, I followed the continuity of it. I didn't see a disjoint, you know, between, I mean, Raging Bull and King of Comedy are both very different films, but I didn't see a disjoint. They're right. about the right. same sorts of things very very different styles very very different characters enacting those things but there are all of scorsese's movies to a certain extent up to a certain point are kind of variations on a film he made at nyu in the 60s called the big shave which Mm. is uh bunny berrigan recording of i can't get started in a very blonde like a guy who doesn't look like a scorsese uh protagonist at all Mm. who gets in front of a bathroom mirror and uh puts shaving cream on his face and starts shaving and just blood. Yeah. Blood keeps coming out and he just, you know, and that's the movie. Um, and, you know, some took it at the time as a metaphor for the Vietnam War. But, you know, it's a more personal thing for Scorsese because all of his movies, all of his most effective movies are about guys, men. They're, they are masculine specific in most cases with mm. the exception of Alice doesn't live here anymore. But they're about men who can't stop hurting themselves. Yeah. Um, Goodfellas is less like that because um, the pathology of Henry Hill is not directly self-loathing right? in the way that the pathology of Jake LaMotta is uh, or the character in New York, New York, or uh, to a certain extent, Travis Bickle, very, very lost. I mean, mm-hmm. Henry Hill knows what he wants. Yeah. Um, that's a different and that makes him a different kind of character than most Scorsese characters have been mm-hmm. up until that point. You know, he wants free shit. He wants yeah. to have a good time. Uh, and then eventually he wants drugs. I mean, you know, he's kind of a, he's just kind of an animal. Right. And for a while he's content to do that as long as it keeps paying off. Mm. The real life Henry Hill was no great shakes as a criminal. I am yeah. told Ed McDonald, the prosecutor who uh, got him into the witness protection program and who plays himself in Goodfellas. 
uh, said to me, the first words he said to me in our interview about uh, Henry Hill was, Henry was a schmuck. Um, (laughs) And he meant that affectionately. The thing about Henry Hill is that he was also an addict, and he was a pathological addict who could never really break free of his addictions, and he kind of went in and out and in and out of his addictions um, and went through a lot of uh, sad times. He called Ed McDonald once sitting on the Santa Monica Pier saying, I'm going to throw myself in the water and kill myself, and I wanted to call you because you're my best friend. And Ed was like, Ed felt bad for him. Yeah. But Ed was like, if, I, if you think I'm your best friend, he didn't say this to him. He said, right. You know, right. if this guy thinks I'm his best friend, he's in, he's in very bad trouble. You yeah. Know? Um, and, uh, you know, the thing about Henry, too, though, too, was that he was always looking for the next hustle. Mm. So once he detached himself to a person who had any credit in the straight world, whether it's Nick Pileggi, the author of Wise Guy, the book about his life that right. was the basis for Goodfellas, or Ed McDonald, who was you know who got out of prosecuting and became a kind of a high, high paid corporate lawyer. I'm not sure he actually does any casework. I think the <laughs> firm that he was at when I was um, when I interviewed him was just hired him to hang out and tell stories to the other lawyers right. in the firm. You know? Good work um, if you can get it, right? Yeah. It's, you know, he's like Bernstein in Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but, um, but these were guys with, with legitimate you know, stuff going on, and he'd always try and, get them, try and get them to put their imprimatur on some weird get-rich-quick scheme right. that he had going, another book, another this, another that, when he put out his cookbook, which is actually a, good, a, good, a very good cookbook. <laughs> I think Nick gave him a blurb or wrote a like 500 word preface or forward. But generally speaking, they didn't. Once they had, you know, they were kind of, you know, one and done in terms of interactions. But Henry was always, you know, on the make. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So you know, they they <clears throat> once you bonded with Henry, you kind of bonded for life, whether you wanted to or not. Right. Right. Um. You know. The character as configured in Scorsese's film and portrayed by uh, Ray Liotta is not nearly as greedy, uh, as needy as that. Mm. Uh, he's a little bit more self-sufficient. Mm. I mean, the film leaves him looking at the camera like, what are you looking at? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And picking up his paper. But the real Henry Hill, having gotten some certain amount of fame as a result of this movie, to be sure, broke out of that, you know, kind of shucked off witness protection, which was, a, a you know, a... a a mixed kind of blessing for him because he's always looking over his shoulder. Yeah. Eventually he was just surprised that no one did try and kill him. Yeah. Because nobody cared that much <laughs> at that point. Because yeah. the mob's power just sort of dissipated over the years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that sounds like a great movie. The, the guy who comes out of witness protection expecting to be killed and no one cares about him and yeah, now he has yeah, to live yeah. with that. That's the sequel. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, it's, the thing is, it's just too sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, you know. Well, one of the things from from your book that I, that you know, was sort of I didn't really think about, but I guess it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, obvious in retrospect, is really kind of what Dire Straits, Scorsese's career was in by the time Goodfellas comes along. You know, sort of like after... King of Comedy flops at the box office, despite, you know, I think it being pretty great. Uh, uh, he really kind of has to fight for everything until that comes along. In a way, he was too upfront because, you know, when he made Raging Bull, which did not do well at the box office, mm-hmm. but got a lot of respect and got awards because of what De Niro did, the the, the uh, extreme measures he went to to pay for, uh, to play Jake LaMotta. 
Um, and Scorsese was very frank about the problems he'd had. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, having once admitted to having had a drug problem, he's kind of painted, even to this day, people talk about him, oh, yeah, the, the cocaine addict Martin Scorsese. Whereas his, <laughs> the actual arc of his addiction was um, more or less a period of about three years. Right. Uh, kind of really starting to get... Um, Starting to get very dire around '77 with New York, New York, and then at the end of '79, um, you know, having that or '78 even having that kind of collapse. Yeah, yeah, '78. So yeah, you know, a year. Uh, but people will post pictures, you know, shots of him at Cannes talking about taxi driver and said, "Look how coked up Scorsese is yeah. here." Well, not necessarily because a he makes sense and b he just talks fast. He mm-hmm. still talks fast. Yeah. But, so, you know, having come out of that period and survived, Raging Bull, he saw it as something he was going to do and then just leave Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, because um, he was so happy to be alive. Um, De Niro had come with this project. He'd been wanting to do the project since 76. Mm. De Niro had the rights to Jake LaMotta's life story since then. Peter Savage, who'd been a co-author of that uh, of. Jake Lamano's autobiography actually appears in a cameo and cameo role in Taxi Driver. He's mm. the John who is in the backseat with the hooker saying, you got something. Uh, <laughs> that's Peter Savage, the co-author of Raising Is that really? Oh, my God. So I had the, no idea. The, the, the concentric circles all around since 76 or so, 75, yeah. 76. And Scorsese goes, I don't want to do it. I don't like sports. I don't like boxing. And when, De Niro, when Scorsese was in a hospital bed, in September of um, you know seventy seventy eight, mm-hmm. um, having having gone through this collapse at Telluride and having to be airlifted to Texas Hospital and then taken to New York, right, uh, and healed up, he's bleeding from every organ in his body except his liver and his eyeballs. And De Niro comes in and he says, uh, "What are you doing? What are you doing? You you, you want to live to see your daughters get married? Because by this time he's got two daughters, mm. um, and uh, you know." Scorsese he's kind of chastened, and uh, De Niro says, we could do this. We could do this movie. And Scorsese then sees it not as a sports movie, but as a movie about a guy who can't stop hurting himself and sees it as, he says, I realized it was about me. Mm -hmm. So he made a movie about himself. And his feeling was, after this, I'm going, going to Rome. He would say to me, for personal reasons, I think he was still trying to salvage maybe, um, he had a marriage to Isabella Rossellini that really went belly up, and um, I think some of that had some of its. Root. I, I'm speculating here, mm. so don't nobody sue me or get mad at me. <laughs> but I think you know there was a part of him that thought you know if he went to Rome, maybe he could straighten things these things out. That's mm. not what happened. I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm not going to make any more movies. Or if I'm going to make, I'm going to make movies about lives of the saints. Right. He still does this. He's going to make his Jesus movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he will. Yeah. But. So Raging Bull gets all this acclaim, gets these awards, doesn't make a lot of money. UA doesn't care because UA only made the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but there's a story about United Artists was going to do this movie. Right. There were a couple of executives from United Artists who said uh, they, didn't, they didn't like the subject matter. They went to Scorsese and apartment. De Niro was there. And David Field says, uh, you know, we love you. We respect you. We want to work with you. Wank, 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 wank. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like I don't want to make this movie about this guy who is a cockroach. Uh-huh. Yeah. And De Niro, very upset. He's not a cockroach. Yeah. And these two guys left. And they thought that they had done this wonderful thing because they, they thought that as a result that then Scorsese and De Niro 
went to St. Martin and did a new version of the script, and that's the script the United Artists mm, shot. Okay. Scorsese said, we did not take that as a goad. We were working on this new version of the script anyway. Right. And we didn't care if United Artists did it or not, because Erwin <laughs> Winkler was the producer. Yeah. Erwin Winkler had a lot of juice at the time. If United Artists didn't want it, we'll set it up some other studio because Erwin is the miracle worker. Erwin can do anything. Right. <laughs> Erwin didn't feel like going through all the trouble of uh-huh. setting it up at another studio, but he had a plan. Um, his plan had to do with a, another film that he had produced called Rocky. Mm-hmm. And Rocky was a very, 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 very popular film. And United Artists had made and distributed that film. They're very, very keen to make and distribute Rocky too. So Erwin went to the head of the studio, who was not David Field or Stephen Bott. He was, these were his underlings. And he said very plainly, five or six words. Mm-hmm. You want Rocky too? Make Raging Bull. <laughs> you, don't, you, you, don't, you don't get the one without the other. Yeah. And yeah. the head of UA said, oh, sure. <laughs> and so right. they let, and this is one of the reasons why Raging Bull actually could shut down production mm-hmm. in the middle of shooting. For about six months, so with everyone on the crew getting paid, right? While right. De Niro went on a grand tour of Europe, eating all the fatty foods right. possible, right? He puts on weight and for gains it, right? yeah. sixty pounds, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's getting in New York, getting paid because United Artists, it, the cost was not outrageous, right? United Artists didn't care. That's mm. the thing. Raging Bull was made without studio interference, not because the studio believed in the project. Yeah. But because they didn't care. Yeah. Because this was the thing that was letting them make Rocky too. <laughs> and Scorsese said to me, every film I've made between Raging Bull and The Irishman yeah. has been a knockdown, drag out fight with the people who are financing the film. Yeah. Raging Bull was completely supported by the studio. Again, out of indifference. Right. Do whatever you want, guys. We're going to go over here and make Rocky too. Right. Right. Um, but, um, and Scorsese says to me, he says, you know, Erwin didn't tell me the story of how that happened until 20 years later. And I'm like, well, do you blame him? I mean, you would have felt terrible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They don't. They just don't care. Right, They right. just don't care. Raging Bull is the movie it is because United Artists didn't care <laughs> because they got Rocky too. That's the bottom line. That's hilarious to me. Yeah. But it's, you know, and it's one of the most hilarious stories of Hollywood movie making to me that a masterpiece gets made. Out of studio indifference. Right, right. Um, but then after that comes The King of Comedy, which is mm. another picture that De Niro had himself commissioned. Yeah. He got the screenplay from the former Newsweek um, film critic Paul Zimmerman. It's a very acerbic screenplay. And Scorsese doesn't want to do it. There's a copy of the script in um, Austin, Texas, in uh, the Ransom Center, where De Niro has his paper stored. And there's a note in one of the drafts saying, Marty says, why does everything have to be so violent and crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Like, why do I have to, why am I the guy you come to with this stuff? Yeah. But eventually De Niro did prevail upon Scorsese. The shoot was apparently very difficult for reasons that nobody actually wants to talk about. Hmm. Um, I asked Barbara Defina, who's one of the producers of Goodfellas and who, you know, who has real personal animus with Scorsese, but even she won't go into it. Hmm. Um, Scorsese certainly won't go into it. And uh, I'd write a book about it, except uh, Hand Comedy is still not a very marketable film. Yeah. It's a great yeah. film, but it's not, you know. But uh, that movie took, a, the, the point was it took a lot out of everybody involved. It was right. hard to shoot. One example was just has to do with the dynamic between the uh, characters of Jerry Langford and 
uh, Rupert Pupkin, played mm-hmm. uh, by uh, Jerry Lewis and Robert De Niro, respectively. And yeah. Scorsese did go into some detail about shooting the scene at, J- at Jerry Langford's summer house where Pupkin and his friend, played by Diane Abbott, De Niro's wife at the time, show up unexpectedly and uninvited, and there's this very ugly confrontation. Yeah. He says, uh, you know, Pupkin says, I made a mistake, and J- Langford says, so did Hitler! <laughs> and that stuff is actually improvised by Lewis. And apparently that scene was just really too raw for everybody. Ah, uh, yeah. A lot of these things in that movie have to do with these people's experiences on both sides of fame. Mm -hmm. Like Scorsese says, I remember being the fan and now I'm the guy. And if you go to any kind of event where Scorsese is now, there's, you know, dozens of, no offense guys, uh, dozens of pupkins who will hang out. Oh, sure. You know, I I saw at a lunch for Wolf of Wall Street, he gets into this SUV and people are chasing the SUV down the street. (laughs) It's insane. I moderated a Q&A with him with the, the Malian director, Suleiman Sisse, mm-hmm. at the Tribeca Film Festival. It was a great Q&A. And the friend who had gotten me the gig, who was generally the guy who did the Q&As, uh, the former critic, now filmmaker, Kent Jones, who was working with Marty quite a lot in those days, you know, gave me a list of things to do. He says, and then yeah. save some time for a short Q&A. I'm like, why short? Yeah. And as soon as I started it, I knew why short, because it's oh, literally yeah. like, Mr. Scorsese, I admire your work. Will you look at my script? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a big theater, and we're on a stage, and eventually people start rushing the stage. Uh And he has to, he goes out the side entrance into a town car, and he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's interested in me. Yeah. You ever see Blow Up? Yeah, oh, sure. There's a scene in Blow Up where he's in the rock club, and Jeff Beck smashes the guitar. Right. (laughs) And he throws the guitar neck into the audience, and everybody's going nuts about it. And David Hemmings catches it, and he's like, Fuck you, I've got the guitar neck, and everybody wants to kill him, and yeah, they yeah. run around, and he runs out of the club, and they're chasing him, they're this, they're that, they're that, and then, you know, he goes down a few alleyways, and he nobody is there anymore, and, you know, he drops the guitar neck, and everybody in this vicinity is like, it's just another piece of trash. Yeah. <laughs> that was me after Scorsese left this, um, I'm that guitar neck, but that's, you know. Well, you look at my script. So, you know, that movie was very uncomfortable and people yeah. didn't like what they saw. And it did very, 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 very badly. Yeah. yeah so yeah. every bad thing anybody ever wanted to say about Scorsese after that, they were free to say. Right. He's right. unreliable. He's a cokehead. He's this. He's that. Uh, and he was in movie jail. Mm-hmm. De Niro had so many things going on that one flop didn't really make any difference to him. And I actually, during that period, did it the work that made him a real movie star. He did The Untouchables. He Mm -hmm. did Midnight Run. Uh, He became bankable, which he never was before. Now, you know, he was a cult movie star. He was an award winner. Spy Magazine did a whole article about how De Niro's not worth the price he commands because he's not that big at the box office. Well, he became big at the box office. Oh, yeah. Much to the surprise of his own agent, even, at the time. But he was and is, and this was what made the interesting dynamic when goodfellas came around because mm. scorsese had done both raging bull and king of comedy as favors yeah. of a sort to de niro and now we are in a situation where scorsese needs a favor from him yeah but what he did in the meantime was kind of go back to independent filmmaking roots he was given a project by amy robinson who was once an actor who was in mean streets as mm-hmm. the very poorly treated girlfriend Teresa and Griffin Dunn, who were actors who formed a production company and made several really unusual and very, each each film very, very different. Chilly mm-hmm. Scenes of Winter, 
a great, great adaptation great of movie. Uh, Joan Beatty's novel with John Hurd. Yeah, and uh, and uh, who's uh, John John John, John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt. Yes, so that's, yes, uh, <laughs> and Gloria Graham in one of her last film roles. And then there's Love Baby It's movie. You, yeah, a terrific uh, high school romance with uh, Roseanne Arquette and I think Vincent Spano, and that's a John Sayles picture. Mm-hmm. And then After Hours, yeah. After Hours, this amazing kind of very mordant, nasty, there's a suicide in it, Kafka-esque dating downtown story with Griffin Dunn in the lead role. Shot all night, every night. Yeah. Shot only at night. Yeah. Shot very fast. Where it says, he says, I knew that if I was spending, if I was in my trailer too long, something was wrong mm-hmm. because that's how much little time we had. But in the meantime, Winkler comes to that set and says, yeah, come on, this is nice, but you want to make a real movie sometimes? Yeah. Says, yeah well, I'd love to, but... <laughs> Um, so what he does is he makes a movie to demonstrate that he can still, that he can play with the big boys. Right. Right. That movie is the color of money. Yeah. Which is a good picture, but not a picture that Scorsese himself ranks very high at all. Yeah. It it has been so interesting, you know, in this latest round of press that he's done for Killers of the Flower Moon, I feel like he's being, you know, very frank about his own body of work, you know, and it's so funny that there are clearly movies that he... It mean, a lot to him, like Silence, for example. You know, he was like always going to make Silence and then he would just do a money job, yeah, yeah. you know. But it's like movies that people like The Departed, I feel like is like beloved now. Yeah, but he, he just like he doesn't care about it at all. No, he, and he he was not he was he was The Departed was a difficult film to make and hmm. he uh, held himself apart from it. He directed it with a certain amount of detachment. I yeah. Think. I'll get to that in a second because that's fascinating, too. But yeah, yeah. Color of Money, he just it's too mild. Yeah. It's too mild. I'm like, it's fine. Yeah. And then he, he's like, yeah, we finished that a day, a day early. Big deal. And he, <laughs> he, he didn't say that, but it's just sort of That's like. That's the attitude. He kind of rolls his eyes like, this is what I had to do. Right. There's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with the movie. The movie has some great stuff in it. Color of Money? Where, yeah. Oh, it's great. Werewolves of London? I mean, the movie's worth making for the Forrest Whitaker scene alone. Yeah. Where, yeah, yeah. where Paul Newman's character gets hustled by a pool shark played yes. by Forrest Whitaker. That you just sit there and you go, who is that? Because it's a very early role for Forrest mm-hmm. Whitaker. You're like, who is that guy? Yeah. That guy, I want to see that guy. You know, it's like in Goodfellas. I, I want to see that guy. Totally. Uh, you want to see that guy again. So there's a lot of stuff in it. It's really great. It's a fun movie. And it's, you know, it has it has a relative, maybe he doesn't like it because it's a relatively upbeat ending. But yeah, they yeah. made the movie. They made it on time. They made it on budget. And it did well. So he was kind of out of movie jail, but right. not quite. Because it was in Chicago that he read Pelleggi's stuff. There's this whole bit of business. He was working with his producer, Barbara Dufina. The reason, one of the reasons, Erwin Winkler says to me, the reason Barbara Dufina is not a credited producer on it, and I'm sorry, but I'm the credited producer because I bought the property. Yeah. If you want to be the producer, you buy the property. This makes sense, but still, you know, Dufina makes a case that she was treated unfairly. But... Then along comes Tom Pollock out of some sort of weird film executive largesse and says, oh, by the way, we're going to make you, we're going to let you make Last Temptation. Yeah. Which is one of the things that got shut down in 93. Right. By that idiot Barry Diller. Can yeah. we get sued for calling Barry Diller an idiot? <laughs> Whatever. No. Come get, come get me, Barry Diller. <laughs> um, Barry Diller is one of those executives who's very lauded and very rich and, you know, when... If the time comes to assess his actual role in making films. It's all negative. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who said, take all the cursing on a Saturday Night Fever. We need a PG rating. This is the level of executive decisions made by Barry Diller. <laughs> so he shuts down, you know, Last Temptation in 93. 
But then Tom Pollock, who's a great guy and a visionary, says, "Yeah, Marty, we come make uh, come make uh, Last Temptation at Universal for yeah. no money." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do. And fortunately, by this time, Scorsese had met Michael Balhaus, the great cinematographer who had worked with the insane genius Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Yeah. Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who would do things like two weeks into shooting, fire an actor. Right. And then cast himself in the role of the actor he fired <laughs> and then have to shoot all that footage over again. Yeah. And develops this uh, method with Michael, with Michael Balhaus, like, we have 10 minutes to get this shot. And mm-hmm. then we do the next setup. And we're going to do this all day until we get all the... The holes plugged in. And that's how they did the crucifixion scene in Last Temptation. Yeah, yeah. So he's not going to say no to that. So he has, every, he has because the book is such a hot property, mm-hmm. everybody is willing, and Pileggi has said, I will only make this movie with Scorsese. Right. He wouldn't even go with De Palma when De Palma approached him because he's like, no, because he wrote the script with Scorsese before Scorsese went off to do uh, last Temptation. So once the script was written, and it's a great script. Yeah. I've read the script. You know, critics say it's a great script. Well, have you read it? Yeah, I did read it. Uh, <laughs> it is great, and it's fantastic. So um, because Pileggi and was and Mike Ovitz who put the whole deal together, those yeah. were powerful people. So they could let Scorsese run off for a year and make Last Temptation and then come back and make Goodfellas, mm-hmm. which weirdly enough had been in Scorsese's mind so, you know, obsessively for such a long period of time that when he com- came home and it was time to make the film, he sort of didn't want to anymore. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. The film already exists in my head to such an extent that actually sitting down and making it, it's going to be a drag, which it wasn't. Uh, yeah. It was, uh, you know, it's an interesting film to write about because I remember when I was first writing the book, Jay Cox, who's a friend of mine, we were having lunch and I told him I was doing this book. He says, do you think there's enough in there for a whole book? Because the actual shooting of the film was relatively drama-free. Mm, there was of Goodfellas. No, of Goodfellas, yeah. yeah. It was relatively drama-free. There was the one day where the another great executive, who I, who I couldn't roast because even though he's still alive, he's apparently uh, very ill with Alzheimer's and is not well. But mm. Terry Semmel, mm. the Warner Brothers guy, came to the set on the day they were shooting the famous How Am I Funny scene Yeah, and had a shit fit. Because he's like, this scene's not in the script. Why are they doing this scene? It's right. not in the script. I'm, I'm punishing you guys. You can't go to Florida. You can't go to Florida and shoot the scene where they, uh, they uh, beat up the guy who, who's not making his payments. You, 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 I'm not letting you go to Florida. Yeah. They're like, that's okay. We're going to get some fake signage and put it on Prospect Park, and that's how we're going to do it. <laughs> Fine, Terry Semmel. And that scene is one of the most celebrated things in the movie. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's a funny scene because it's a scene that was suggested by Joe Pesci, mm-hmm. uh, who needed to be convinced to be in the movie. Joe didn't like doing mafia roles after a certain point in time, and that had to do with the fact that he... Uh, knew a lot of mafia people when he was coming up in the nightclub business. And um, that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, <laughs> but um, he he had some stories from his mm. times in the clubs, as did everybody. If you right. read uh, Nick Tosh's biography of uh, Jerry Lewis, um, Jerry Lewis, you know, anybody who worked in a nightclub starting from the 1940s, because this is where all the gangsters went after bootlegging. Drama. Right. They went into nightclubs and, backroom casinos, gambling, all that kind of stuff. You couldn't you couldn't be in the entertainment business without rubbing shoulders with mafioso. Yeah. This yeah. is what Gary Trudeau never understood when he tried to roast Frank Sinatra about this sort of thing. These were the people who ran the fucking joints. Yeah. 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 Um so you maybe you don't want to be in show business. Maybe you want to draw a comic strip like Gary Trudeau. 
But if you want it to be in show business, you rub shoulders with them. And yeah. Jerry Lewis, to his dying day, was proud that one of these mafiosos, you know, was one of the year after year one of the biggest contributors to the muscular dystrophy telephone mm, and yeah. hugged this guy. Yeah, yeah. Because Jerry didn't give a shit. Right. <laughs> and honestly, if you're going to, I mean, maybe that's the right attitude. I don't know. But Pesci's story was of a mobbed up guy in one of the clubs that he was playing. He was a guitar player, and Frank Vincent was a drummer. They had a little club trio. Mm -hmm. Vincent. Um, Joe Pesci and guy who never got into the Scorsese movies. And the guy is a mobster and he's do, he does the, how the fuck am I funny business? Yeah. And it never happened to Henry Hill. It's not in the book wise guys, but it's, it's, it's in that atmosphere, right? It works. So they adapted it for the film mm. and they shot it without a script, not because they hadn't rehearsed it. They had rehearsed it, but they, they did it with a two camera setup, which Scorsese very rarely uses. Because they hadn't written in an escape route for Liotta's character. Yeah, yeah. Liotta had to do the thing where, um, how's he going to get out of this? When mm -hmm. is the pressure going to let up? I, did, I acted in a film by Steven C Soderbergh. In tw I, I, we shot in 2008. Called did the, you really? Called The Girlfriend Experience. Oh, I was, yeah. I was a very fat kind of job. I, w I weighed 300 pounds, which I don't anymore. I weigh 220 <laughs> now. But uh, I was a very fat kind of jab of the hut kind of internet pimp trying to inveigle my way into Sasha Gray's um, private areas. And um, Stephen had me, had me do a phone call where I'm trying to convince her to come to my lair. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't give an exit point. Uh-huh. Just convinced her to do it. I'm like, what? Yeah. Because it's all improvised dialogue in the film. And it took about 10 minutes, and she finally said, it was really excruciating. But it was the same, <laughs> it was the same thing with uh, Liotta. They didn't tell him what to do. To, to get out of the situation. And yeah. he finally just improvised that thing where he puts up his hands. Yeah. It's yeah. the surrender. Tommy, get the fuck out of here. And that's the end of it. Right. So it's perfect. It's great. It's fantastic. It's one of the signal um, scenes in the film. And people will compliment Nick Pelleggi about it all the time. Yeah. yeah. And Pelleggi will not say, I didn't write that scene. He'll just take the compliment because what are you going to do? It's too I, yeah. complicated. I would do the same thing. And also the fact of the matter is it didn't happen to Henry Hill, but it sure as hell could have. And that yeah. was that's kind of the key to what Scorsese let happen when he did allow that kind of improvisation in the film, which is it comes from a very fantastic and very beautifully written script. Yeah, yeah. Man, yeah. Well, I, it pains me to say this, Glenn, but we got to start wrapping the show up. I know. It's <laughs> gone by so quickly. I had all these notes. I've got by like two questions. Well, here. Do, 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 do one more question. All right. Let, let me give you a random, a random, a random uh, question, question just to, to uh, end the show on. What's your favorite James Bond movie? Goldfinger. Awesome. Yeah, Perfect. and it didn't take me too long to, uh, to, to say that. Yeah. Uh, because it is the best. It's so good. Um, and it is the most fun, and it is the one that has uh, Bond delivering the line that reveals him as a total reactionary, which is it's like listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Yes. yes. Um, what a dick you are, James Bond. I know. He hates the Beatles. Uh, weirdly enough, it's not the first James Bond movie I saw. The first James Bond movie I saw was You Only Live Twice. Oh, yes. And my yes. parents took me to see it, and we went to see it at the drive-in, and I felt very secret agent-like. Because I had a black turtleneck sweater that looked just like the one worn by the cartoon character Johnny Quest. Uh huh. Yeah. Johnny Quest being a weird espionage series done by Hanna Barbera. So yeah. I was. I wore my Johnny Quest 
sweater to see you only live <laughs> twice. And I was traumatized because in the beginning he's killed by machine guns. Right. All sorts of blood. I didn't take movie violence very well at the time. But I like that movie too. So I guess that's my second favorite in terms of sentimentality. But Goldfinger's the best. Oh, it's so Goldfinger's good. Goldfinger's the best. No, yeah. Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Yeah. Um, and uh, the horse the horse angle, too. It's just, um, it's got everything. Yeah. I always I always wanted, if I ever hit the lottery, I'm never going to hit the lottery. But and, and I've gotten over this fantasy, but for a long time, my fantasy of hitting the lottery would be to have, you know, a rec room like the one at, at the at the stable yeah. in Kentucky and Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with pool the pool table, table that comes apart. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Why would it come apart though? I have no plans for heists or world domination. So why would I need that feature for the pool table? I, I figured I'd compromise just get a regular pool table. Right. But I like that kind of space. You know, absolutely. Space. Absolutely. So Goldfinger's awesome. Goldfinger. Um the song is the best. Yeah. Uh Shirley Bassey's the best. Shirley Eaton's the best. Um, gin rummy. I've never figured out how to play that game. No, me neither. The whole thing, the everything about it, everything about it is immaculate. Yeah. You know? Um, uh, odd job, you know, <laughs> crushing the, the golf ball. The golf yeah, ball. yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Well, perfect note to end on here. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, uh, talk about your, your books and everything. Really excited for the Scarface one. And, uh, what it was a pleasure. pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much. Absolutely. Right. Uh, folks, keep your dials tuned to Radio Free Brooklyn. Shedding light is starting in mere minutes. In the meantime, here are the feelies. See you next week. We got, uh, slipping into something queuing oh, nice, up here. Nice, nice. There's old.